We are delighted that this episode of Starts at the Top is sponsored by Avato CRM Solutions. Avato CRM Solutions designs and delivers award-winning customer service, business process outsourcing, and digital and intelligent automation solutions of some of the world's most respected brands, as well as innovative charity and public sector clients. They partner with clients to help them define their customer experience and transformation strategies by implementing the right technology, people and processes to improve their customer journey while driving new efficiencies and helping them prepare for the future. To find out more about how Avato CRM solutions could help an organisation like yours and to receive a free no-obligation chat, visit avato.co.uk forward slash Wales Air Ambulance. We're going to need to utilise everybody's skills and talents, which also includes people who may feel like outsiders for various reasons. We cannot afford to have certain groups not being able to flourish. Welcome to a brand new episode of Starts at the Top, our podcast about leadership, digital and change. I'm Paul Thomas. And I'm Zoe Anna. Our podcast is all about leadership and brings you interviews with leaders who we believe are driving a positive change in the world. Change comes in many forms and we're equally interested in speaking to leaders who are making incremental change and shifting the dial within their own organisations as we are about talking and speaking about huge systemic changes that impact the world of work. The driving force of this podcast is to share those stories across sectors and industries so that we can all learn from each other. And in today's episode, we're going to share our discussion with Samuel Kasumu, one-time advisor to Boris Johnson and author of The Power of the Outsider, A Journey of Discovery. Zoe, what did you make of Samuel's book? Oh, I thought it was fascinating. Really, really interesting. I think it's a great read for any leaders who are thinking about um, marginalised groups in their organisations and how they can make sure that they really do truly create a culture of belonging. And I think it's just a really helpful route to understand what an outsider is because Samuel talks about how outsiders come in all kinds of shapes and sizes there are different kinds of being an outsider and he describes that at the start of the book he talks about different ways in which you can help more people all these different types of people who may feel like they're outsiders feel included Uh, so I, I thought it was really illuminating and really really interesting This is one of those episodes where I think my role is one of learning. Having said that, I thought this was a fascinating read and one that shone a line on what it means to come from a relatively privileged working class background, but still find yourself in a situation within government where you are seen as a total outsider, which eventually led to to Samuel leaving. And I thought his honesty and insight was inspiring. I mean, I, I really liked the book and I would recommend it, but I thought it came to life a bit more for me through our conversation, if that makes sense. Yeah, I agree. I think it was so interesting to hear the story behind the book, as it were, and to explore how he'd navigated his own role as an outsider and how he came to see that as a real strength because it's helped him be innovative and also stay true to his values. So I really enjoyed talking to him and I think it's a really fascinating read that uh, anyone who's interested in EDI, which I imagine is hopefully most people, uh, should definitely pick that up and have a look at it. Yeah. 
And as we were just discussing before we recorded, I did reflect that actually I think the the idea of um, existing at the edges of an organisation or existing the, at the edges of conversation sometimes in the role of observer is often a very, very strong position to put yourself into. So you can see where your skills and where you can add value rather than being sort of entrenched in a business sense or in a, an organisational sense entrenched in a, in a single team within an organisation. And they say, you know, they said innovation often comes from the edges. So I think it's interesting to, to take that view in the book, uh, really explores that well. Paul, if you don't mind, um, I'm just going to challenge that slightly, just because I think that I think there is value in being an outsider. And I don't think I could have done the things that I've done in my career, for example, without being an outsider and having the benefit of quite often looking at things from a very different perspective, just because of who I am and my demographic. I also think there is, and we explore this in the interview itself, I do think there can be a very human cost to being an outsider. And I know that you and I have have talked about that before. Mm. So from my own experience, going to many meetings over the years where I am one of very few people of colour in the room and sometimes one of very few women in the room. And I Mm. I, I do think that's a big challenge in, in the world of digital so I think that I think what really came through in the book and also the fascinating conversation with Samuel is that yes, there is an element of of of, of privilege in some ways um, to being an outsider because you get that unique perspective on things and that strength that comes from looking at things differently. There's also a lot to navigate, um, and there are there are barriers as well. There are barriers, and it does take some strength of of character I think and a support network and Samuel talks in the book about the value of sponsorship and mentorship and the uh, responsibility that organizations have to be aware of how they open those doors uh, to make sure that um, people uh, have a fair crack at things everyone uh, has a chance Mm. to to contribute. I was specifically thinking about innovation, but also, you know, when you mentioned EDI, um, I think it's really important that businesses or any organisation puts a real focus on purposely um, making EDI happen as well, not just sort of reflecting or, you know, where are we and where should we be? How can we make things better? But actively going and pursuing um, the agenda and making it a core part of absolutely everything they do, you know, give people a seat at the table. Don't expect them to sit at the edges of that table and chip in from the outside, but give them a seat at the table as well. So, yeah, Mm. completely agree. And maybe that's something we need to explore in our next season, because I think there's some really interesting things I'm hearing at the moment, and not just in charities about how because of the pressures of cost of living, all the other challenges that organisations are facing at the moment, that perhaps EDI isn't quite the priority that it Mm. was a year ago. So I think it'd be quite interesting to to delve into that. What's changed? Uh, how are things progressing? Who's still really committed to this and what can we learn from them? Mm, yeah, we certainly don't want to rest on our laurels on that point. And if anyone uh, knows anyone out there who they think would be a great guest or guests on those topics, uh, please just let us know. You can contact us on the socials or email us. So now for our interview with Samuel Kasumi. We are very excited to welcome Samuel Kasumi to our podcast today. Samuel is an award-winning social entrepreneur, commentator and strategist. 
He is the founder of Inclusive Boards, an executive headhunting firm, and has been involved in setting up and growing a number of initiatives to support the progress of Britain's black and minority ethnic population. He has won numerous awards for his work, including Barclays Business Enterprise Award, CBI's Young Star of Enterprise Award, and Entrepreneur Champion of the Year. He is the author of The Power of the Outsider, his first book, and it's about his experiences of being the most senior black advisor in Boris Johnson's government, along with the value that outsiders bring and how difference can be a huge force for good. Samuel, welcome to Starts at the Top. We're so happy to have you here. Thank you for having me, Zoe and Paul. Congratulations on the book. Uh, we found it a really interesting read and there's a lot to dig into here, which is uh, very relevant to a lot of the themes we've explored on this podcast before. Can we kick off with you describing what an outsider is and what the different types of outsider are? Yeah, sure. So when I uh, set out to write the book, uh, I tried to make sure that it didn't necessarily have a conclusive definition of what it meant to be an outsider because I kind of felt like it meant different things to different people in different places for different reasons. Um, and so by the time I'd finished the book, so starting with the end, I suppose, um, I realised that the one thing that every outsider has in common is that they're set apart. And the one the one thing that you could add to a definition that would allow people to, I guess, be rooted in their outsiderness is that they're set apart for a reason. And so that's the definition I use. An outsider is somebody that is different from a, a group or an environment, but they're different for a reason. They're not just different. They're different because there's a value that they bring. And in terms of the types of outsiders, there are many different types of outsiders. You can feel like a demographic outsider, or um, so an outsider because of, uh, something that is an objective fact. Um, it could be the colour of your skin. It could be your gender. It could be the football team you support. It could be um, where you went to school, the area you grew up in. So a, a social or demographic outsider, somebody that is an outsider because of something that you, you know is, is 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 a fact. You could also be an outsider because although you might look the same or sound the same or be the same objectively as everybody else for some reason you feel a bit different so um you could be a psychological outsider and that is an outsider that you might find in a family a context where you are you know you have the same mother and father as all your siblings but you're the quiet one the introvert or there might be something that just makes you feel like although you might be like everybody else in your environment you are different um, it could be because you've suffered trauma that nobody else knows who you've had. It could be because you have some form of dysphoria. So, you know, everybody in the room might be a, a particular gender and you might feel like actually, you know, for various reasons, that is not the gender that you feel most comfortable living within. So that's the second type of outsider. And then the third type of outsider, and this is the one where perhaps you have the most agency is the tactical outsider. And so this is an outsider um, that, sets themselves apart from a group uh, in order to obtain some form of advantage or because there is a, a feeling of disconnect or unsatisfaction with a particular group or discourse. So um, so an example of that is my former boss, Boris Johnson. You know, he went to Eton, um, went to Oxford, uh, was in the Bullington Club, uh, a high-flying journalist, 
in many respects, uh, an insider. Um, but in order for him to, or in his view, obtain the highest office, he chose to position himself as as an outsider in many ways. Uh, and I guess most famously in choosing to to lead a, a campaign to leave the European Union. Another example is uh, Najib Raj. Um, is of course somebody who people view as an anti-establishment figure, but again, uh, someone who is from relatively privileged background very well connected in high society, you know, he's mates with Rupert Murdoch, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but he has positioned himself tactically in order for him to, to push a particular agenda that uh, I guess we can we can assume he's passionate about. Um, and then also, of course, there are left-wing examples of outsiders. <laughs> I'm just giving you some really right-wing ones. But anyway, um, yeah, so they're, they're the three main types or categories of outsiders. So it can be a demographic outsider, psychological outsider, tactical outsider. The interesting thing is, you can be all of those things at once. One of the things that they all bring together is they all have a value that they bring. Uh, and then the other thing, which I guess we might explore later, is there is always the potential of a feeling of isolation, even if you were a tactical outsider. So it's not saying, well, you know, just because this type has so much agency, they're less likely to feel like they're alone or um, lonely or isolated. That feeling is very natural and very common. And that's something which I think you explore so courageously in the book and something that really resonates with me as a woman of colour, because I think I've spent a lot of my life feeling as an outsider. So I was wondering if we could compare notes for a moment and perhaps if you could tell us a bit about when you felt like an outsider and how that feels. The book kind of centres around my experience in Downing Street. So when I entered uh, number 10, I was quite different from the rest of my colleagues in the sense that I wasn't part of Boris Johnson's uh, City Hall gang. So when he was mayor of London, I didn't work with him then. I never played a leading role in leaving the European Union. So I wasn't part of the vote leave set. Uh, so Dominic Cummins, Lee Kane, etc. So I didn't come in with them. And I wasn't a legacy hire. So a legacy hire in the sense that I didn't work full time down the street for Theresa May or David Cameron. And so they were essentially the three sets of people that entered Downing Street with Boris Johnson in 2019. Um, I mean, I, I knew a few people there, of course, but I wasn't part of, of any of those groups. So I was an outsider, you know, by default when I walked in, one, one of the very few people that came in because, well, because I could actually, you know, bring a, a specific type of expertise. In addition to that, you know, yes, I'm a, a, a black uh, man and I was the only black advisor in Downing Street for a long time. Also from a working class background, didn't go to Oxford and Cambridge. Um, so I was very different. And when I first arrived, it wasn't something that I had much time to think about. And actually, for most of my time in Downing Street, there wasn't much time for me to think about it. But it's only after I left that I realised that perhaps I needed to probably explore what that experience was like and, and why my outsiderness may have impacted how I was functioning in that environment. And you describe that experience of being an outsider and ultimately the impact that had on you, I think very movingly and very openly as well in chapter 15 of of the book. And what really struck me about that chapter in which you describe why you left Downing Street is the, the human cost of being an outsider. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about what you describe in that chapter why you left and the toll that being an outsider can sometimes take yeah it's a 
you know, throughout the book, I mean, chapter 54 is towards the latter part, but throughout the book, I tried to start with a values first perspective, saying, well, actually, let's first understand that being an outsider is not a bad thing, right? But at the same time, when you're trying to function in certain environments, it can have a, a significant impact on you, on your ability to flourish if you feel isolated or if you feel like you can't be your full self or if you feel like you're not quite sure how to navigate certain spaces. And so when I was in Downing Street, there were times when, of course, I, I felt like, well, I know why I'm here. You know, technically, I represent the majority because most people think it's Oxford or Cambridge. Most people are not from the upper echelons or have family members from the upper echelons in society so there are times I try to remind myself that actually although I might be an outsider in here technically I represent more people than most of the folks in, in a similar position to myself but that didn't mean that it didn't take its toll on me and some of the challenges I had was around not necessarily being able to communicate how I was uh, feeling or the things I was going through because there was always this feeling that Perhaps I needed to make sure that I could demonstrate that I could hold my own or I didn't want to you know, push certain buttons that would result in me maybe being even further isolated. It's a political environment, loads of really powerful people. Um, and the last thing you want is not to be able to progress or, or push on uh, in your work because some people feel like, well, he's a bit too different or he's not really on our side. You know, So those are some of the things I was uh, having to navigate. In addition to that, Everybody in life has their own personal challenges in their own environments, whether it's at home or wherever. And so trying to balance the issues at work with, you know, the life of life um, was probably the reasons that led to me eventually departing. Yeah, absolutely. And we thought you'd just describe, we told the story of that in such a a moving very sort of human way uh, in that final part of the book and as you say I think those two realities can coexist right I mean if I could press a button and not be an outsider I wouldn't do that because I think it's been really formative for what I've done I think it's been very formative for what you've done and you've achieved as well but equally there are moments when you you do feel isolated right I mean those those two things do coexist don't they, in, in the reality of a lot of people from different backgrounds in, in the workplace. And I think what you described so well at the end of the book, it's that sense of you're kind of doing two jobs, aren't you? You're doing, in your case in particular, you're doing this incredibly challenging job during a time of national crisis amidst the global upheaval of the pandemic. And you're also trying to forge this blueprint for the future aren't you as well about what the new workplace could could look like and the place of people who've got different backgrounds within it yeah and I think the challenge is particularly in in the west and you know we talk we can talk about the UK is we've never really been in this moment before where you have so many different types of people entering spaces that were the preserve of, of elites and so you know more people are going to university, we can have a debate around how we feel about that. But nonetheless, there are people who are going to education and their parent for the first time in their family. There are people who are um, people, we, we've never looked this way in terms of our ethnic uh, makeup. And so, you know, there are places that were, were always full of like the foreign office, which when I met, uh, you know, in the book, I speak to Samir Puri, who is a, a really high flying individual in, in the foreign office. 
and there were never there was never people like him you know 30 odd years ago and even now it's still a very tough place to get into if you're if you're not from a particular type of background but we're making progress and as a result of that progress we don't necessarily all know how to function and that is not just on people who are part of elite groups but also people who are entering for the first time so everybody is trying to figure it out and we're not necessarily afforded the space to be honest about that you know and so what i tried my best to do in the book is give people that space and say look actually these are really important questions we don't all know the answers and unfortunately, we all have to sound like we know the answers because <laughs> that's what society demands. But actually, maybe we just need to try and understand people a bit better. In fact, maybe we just need to try and understand ourselves a bit better first, <laughs> because if we can under- understand ourselves, then maybe we might be a bit more gracious towards folks who will inevitably get it wrong. Um, the reason why I call you know, this, the subheading is a journey of discovery is I think we're all on this journey of discovery. But because of things like social media and other pressures, it's just very difficult for us to have a sense of humanity in this day and age. And and I suppose that's probably part of my broader mission now. I want to try and find a way to help people with opposing views to just at least try and understand themselves a bit a bit better. Do you think it's possible to do that within Westminster? Do you think that's the possibly the sort of the worst environment we we interviewed um, Ian Dunt about his book, How Westminster Works and, mm. and Why It Doesn't. And he described this um, this role of the, the sort of specialist advisors, the SPADs, mm. within Westminster as being these people that are absolutely necessary to the diversity of thinking uh, within government because government ministers, MPs, are of a specific type that's really hard to to infiltrate, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but the specialist advisors are there. But I mean, I, I just to, you know, go around the houses of it. I, I come from my, my recent work background is working for um, professional services. And I've always been quite taken by the fact that in a partner led organisation, the partners assume this role of responsibility, almost like the MPs of, the, of Westminster, where they, they sort of take the roles, the sort of leadership roles in places mm-hmm. like HR and marketing and functions like that despite the fact that they don't have any specialist knowledge at all. So into that environment, if you're putting yourself in that environment as the specialist advisor, do you think, is that role doomed to failure? Is it a short term, go in and make an impact? Or can you really affect real change? It's a good question, Paul. I mean, I um, I, I always joke and say, I, you know, I, I outlasted Dominic Cummins, Lee Kane, and a bunch of other folks. So, <laughs> but, the, but, you know, the turnover is is relatively high because it's a high pressured environment um everybody who's a special advisor particularly down the street has a lot of power um and and so you're having to navigate each other more than you're trying to navigate you know ministers etc to be honest um particularly in the environment i was in um which wasn't the most functional i think you can be successful as a special advisor uh, but a lot of things need to align you know i think most people whether they like me or not um, or they agreed with me leaving or not, would attest to the fact that I, you know, I was I was pretty good at my job. But that was mainly because I, you know, I had experiences that other people didn't. I was just very just very used to doing stuff and not waiting around for you know, conversations. And that's why I ended up be leading on the vaccine deployment because some of the others would have probably just been more interested in having policy conversations, whereas I was quite keen to drive the campaign forward. We'll drive a lucky campaign, make sure we understood different groups and the, the variables across the country that would have led to it being successful. So I think mean, you can be successful at the job. 
you need to have a good prime minister. You need to have good secretaries of state who understand their role. Um, you need to have decent people who have the right skills in place. But I guess separate to that, can Westminster function well? Uh, I think the answer is yes. But again, it goes back to having good people. You know, politicians often only focus their minds on the next election. And he, even a half decent you know, prime minister will try and get you know, really tough things done in year one and year two so that they can then you know, refocus on the next election. And so, you know, most politicians are so focused on the five-year cycle um, in this country that it's very difficult for us to have people who have a, a long-term view and people who are trying to make the case for doing the right thing. And, and I think that's what we need more. If we need more people who are able to say, well, actually, you know, is this really going to be the best thing to do for the country, you know, looking 10, 20 years from now? And we don't have people maybe who are, I don't want to say smart enough, but maybe uh, talented enough in Westminster to, to do that well right now, to be honest. I've got an ongoing fascination between the differences between specialists and generalists and read quite a lot around that, that subject. There's, um, hmm. Listeners to the podcast will probably be bored with me talking about David Epstein's range, but there is this sort of, uh, this constant sort of, in, in the writing around the subject, it's always about specialists versus generalists or generalists versus specialists and mm. you know the, the 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 two things you're either one or the other and i see myself more as a as a generalist with specialist leanings so there are areas that i specialize more in than perhaps others but you know it's um it's a it's a general role that i per- perform do you think those two can coexist is is one sort of out uh, outweighed or overruled within westminster do you think is do we need to sort of talk more about generalism and specialism combining and working together and is that easy to achieve do you think yeah that's it's a good question i don't think there are many particularly at the very highest levels i don't think there are many specialists to be honest in westminster no. i mean it's be very difficult for you to in the current current way westminster functions for you to get very far being a specialist because a lot of generalists are able to utilize certain skills to get very far so for example i mean i probably call myself a generalist but the one thing i bring is leadership and so you know when i'm in down the street you know after a day or two of trying to stop getting lost in a building you know my focus was <laughs> was on like how do i lead how do i make sure i'm in charge here and this is this is how i'm most comfortable and and so that's you know pretty much what i did over a two-year period but special advisors aside big issue in westminster is for you to become a member of parliament, usually, you know, on, but I would say for most most parties, particularly, you know, the Conservative Party, you need to go and knock on loads of doors. Um, you need to go and make calls at the campaign headquarters. You need to go and brown nose and some dinners. Um, and you need to get some people knowing you. And and is, should that really be enough? I don't think so. And and so what you do, what you end up with is a bunch of mediocre journalists, not necessarily journalists who were also bringing leadership capacity or you know corporate experience or experience in education. You just folks who've been knocking on doors for the last three or four years is who you get. And with the labour movement, it's slightly different because usually you need to be a member of a union, um, or more often than not. But it's still kind of like the same. So you're a member of the union, you know, do the members of the union in that particular seat know who you are? You know, are the unions backing you? But what does that have to do with, you know, whether or not you bring specialists or even, you know, high level generalist skills to the table? So Westminster doesn't work with all due respect because Westminster is full of insiders 
who you know might have some slight differences but they've all taken the same path in and when you have someone that's an outsider that ends up in Westminster as a member of parliament you know usually it's kind of like some kind of weird accident and sometimes people regret it because they're like this person is as far too, too disruptive how did they get here you know how did they slip through vetting <laughs> why, why are they this outspoken etc so yeah it does need to change but I think the, the quality of the people that we want to get into Westminster needs to change just one more thing on that you know a lot of good people don't want to go into politics because they see how politicians are treated and how they treat each other and so that's probably another thing that needs to be explored or confronted you know loads of he's been attacked on social media but also you know put the political class finding ways to attack each other because they're so focused on on trying to win the impossible job a really difficult job um but something that takes us on really nicely to some of the other themes in the book about the advantages of, of being an outsider and the many strengths that outsiders bring. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Because I found your exploration of those issues really fascinating. Yeah, it's, so, you know, going to meet the different um, outsiders that helped me to navigate this journey, I made sure I went to visit them with a very open mind. Um, and actually, some of the things that you see around the values they bring was purely based on reflections from listening to them speak and listening to their stories and their journeys. So, you know, outsiders um, can stand out, which is a very important thing when you're trying to either send a signal or you're trying to inspire others. Um, and, and that, of course, that outsiders can inspire people from different backgrounds to, to know that certain things are possible. They can challenge orthodoxy. You know, sometimes when Things are not going the way that they need to go. Bringing an outsider with some fresh perspective, with some fresh energy can often get things moving. Like, I don't know, if you have a sports team that's not performing very well, you can either change the whole team, which might be very expensive. You know, everyone has deep pockets like Chelsea Football Club. Or you can bring in a new manager who might bring some fresh energy and and, and drive some, some more value out of the existing team. They can heal divisions. And this is such an important uh, thing for me, I think. But we in a society today, there are so many different divisions based on cultural issues or whatever, you, what have you. But the best way, in my opinion, to build bridges is to try and bring people who are outsiders who can actually have you know, maybe not as much skin in the game or a bit of credibility on both sides to, to build bridges. So there's so many things that outsiders can bring if they are allowed or they can grasp the opportunity to flourish. Yeah, and that totally resonates with me as a woman of colour. I mean, I wouldn't change it for anything. I think it, I think it in the right way, in the right environment, it can actually be really liberating to be an outsider, can't it? Yeah, and it's about two things. One is recognising the value you bring. I think it should always start with you. Um, and and that's, I think that's my challenge to a lot of people in society now. It's, you know, okay, fine, we can talk about, uh, individuals and institutions that need to do better you know, we can all agree they need to do better but first for you to fulfill your full potential and for you to feel uh, a sense of I don't know psychological safety you need to also make sure that you recognize your value and your worth first it's got to start with you and that's the challenge you know and so yeah I think that's important and then once you've done that that gives you the confidence to be able to really flourish and challenge folks in the right way but from a very strong starting point and for institutions and individuals and as a country the challenge is 
we are struggling with things like productivity. We have an Asian population. We have really big challenges that we are not grappling with very well as a, as a country today. And yes, we're in the middle of a cost of living crisis. And yes, we've had a pandemic. But those, those things have only highlighted the challenges that were already there. And for us to really progress as a country, we're going to need to utilize everybody's skills and gifts, talents, which also includes people who may, may feel like outsiders for various reasons. We cannot afford to have certain groups not being able to flourish. Um, and so selfishly, we need to make sure everybody can go as far as they can. Yeah, 100% support that. And I love your point there about people beginning that journey by realizing their strengths and their values what they bring to the table it feels like there's something supporting that as well around self-acceptance for anyone who is right at the beginning of their journey with that process how did you do it Samuel what would you advise others who are in that situation that's a, that's a really good question I suppose I mean before I was in Downing Street I mean, I've always felt like I'm, I was an outsider because I've always just decided to do things that I don't know, make me feel comfortable. So, you know, going to a particular university was because, well, I just felt like doing it and my dad thought it was crazy, but, you know, we are the we are. Or um, choosing when I left university not to go and get a job and set up a social enterprise. These are things that have always felt quite natural to me. So I suppose the first thing I, I would say is, if possible, try and find the things that are very natural for you to do and see if you can be afforded the opportunity to do that. And that might not be through, through work, it might be through volunteering or, or what have you. Because the more you're able to utilize your skills in ways that add value to, to your community or society, then the more you're gonna get the confidence to, to grow in that area. So that's the first thing I would say. Second thing I would say is everybody who has progressed in life has had help. You know, whether you are somebody who's born into privilege and, you know, the help is on your doorstep or upstairs or whatever, um, or, or an uncle or an aunt, or whether, you know, you're somebody from an underrepresented background who's had a mentor or a teacher who believed in you or some uh, you, you access an internship somehow or, or what have you. Everybody has folks who help them. And so if you want to be in a position where you, you can get that help, um, then you need to also be someone willing to give that help to and so I'd say that make sure you're giving back, um, make sure you're mentoring yourself um, and so that, you know, you, you understand the dynamics of how to get the help you need. Uh, personal branding is, of course, very, very important. Um, so what is it you bring to the table? And, you know, if I was to go on your social media, you know, what story am I going to get from viewing your online presence? So how can I see that you are the thought leader in your space? Uh, and I suppose the final thing I would say is just, you know, life's short, so try your best to embrace every moment. You know, this this is a wonderful country, the United Kingdom, but we have, people don't feel very happy right now. <laughs> and I think one of the reasons why they don't feel very happy is because they don't feel like they can be themselves or they can flourish. And so, you know, try and find opportunities for you to feel like you're being able to, to be yourself. Um, and if it's too big an ask in your current place of work, then start in environments that might not be work. You know, go wherever you can to build that confidence uh, and, 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 and take it step by step. So if we bring those themes back to the workplace and the role of leaders and employers, because I think this takes us very nicely onto one of the other things you describe in the book about 
the the value that facilitators can bring you know brokering those relationships between different groups in the workplace or whatever environment it might be what role should facilitators play what what should leaders be doing out there to to bring different groups together yeah we hear it all the time but it's true leadership matters you know you start you have to set the tone you have to be the standard bearer you have to be the one that is being very explicit about what is important in an environment and so you know if if, if you're in an environment and the leader doesn't really say very explicitly that well this is a place that's going to be inclusive we don't do bullying we don't do inappropriate remarks we need to make sure that we are embracing folks from different backgrounds and making people feel welcome then it's very easy for that not to be the case and values, I was talking about values can be you know, either expressed or implied, um, actual or aspirational. Um, and in reality, they should probably be all four. And so, you know, when you walk into an environment, you, know, you should be able to tell what kind of values or culture you have just by how people treat each other. But it also helps for it to be written somewhere. <laughs> um, and then in terms of your values, yeah, they should be actual to an extent, but you should always aspire to want to be better. So you should also be quite aspirational with you know the environment you want to to have, and and that's that must flow from the leadership, and there's also a need for it to be quite constant. You know you, you can't just um, say things on day one and say go oh, goodbye, have a good one, because we're all human beings. We're all you know it, we're all imperfect. We all have good days and bad days for various reasons. You never really know what somebody's going through outside of a working environment, and so you you need there's a need to constantly remind people about the environment that you you want to have um and then just rem- remember the fact that actually inclusion is everybody's business and when, when i say it's everybody's business yes it must start with the leadership but everybody must take a proactive role in making sure that they are doing their bit to make people including outsiders feel like they can flourish so leaders play, play a huge role in terms of the role of the facilitator as i said you know for us to go get get anywhere in life you know somebody will always be responsible for, for opening the door or helping us out or giving us a chance and that's the role of the facilitator we, we must all play a role as a facilitator but when you're quite senior you must play an even more proactive role you need to like constantly thinking okay who can i help who can i support who can i give a chance and your job is not necessarily to be responsible for the outcome you know we don't need to necessarily say well you know if i gave paul a helping hand will he will he really you know embrace this opportunity and do well actually to a large extent you know the outcome is not necessarily a facilitator's responsibility but it's the responsibility to give the chance to give the opportunity and hopefully things will work out and there's a an inspirational story to tell as a result yeah completely agree with all that I think that's such an important thing for leaders to consider how they facilitate that bringing together of different communities in the workplace and and not to do it in a performative way either to give it that intention and real thought that you've described there first of all I was going to say I think you know a lot of the conversations we've had recently have been about uh, the next generation coming into the workplace and not sort of seeing it in the same way that we perhaps do so they are coming in and, and immediately looking for that evidence of what is this organization for? What is it going to do? What are the values? And do I share those values? And if they don't see that um, being reflected, they're not afraid to just walk away. They're yeah. not afraid to just sort of move on to the next the next place. And we can sort of talk about uh, having side hustles and moving from gig to gig, the gig mm. economy and stuff like that, that, that sort of have a almost like a negative connotation, but actually is a massive positive for, for most young people. 
So I think hopefully it is changing. The last point I was was going to make was a a sort of a a silly one, really. But um, when I was uh, reading the book, just before I went away on holiday, I was reflecting that this was a lot like superheroes. Most superheroes are outsiders, and it brought to mind your sort of views around um, being an outsider and uh, bringing outsiders together was a bit like um, Professor X and the X-Men, where you have, you know, all of these different powers and responsibilities that are very different to the world around you, that sort of mutant idea. But actually, when you bring them all together and, and act. But the one that really, really made me think was was Batman. <laughs> As you were talking just a few minutes ago, I was thinking, actually, this is quite right. You know, Batman and Bruce Wayne came from money. He was a huge part of the the city of, of Gotham where, you know, where he was born where his parents lived and had a huge stake in, in the city, but found the power to make positive change within the city by becoming that outsider. And I think the Christopher Nolan films really, really play on that. How do you enact change by taking yourself completely out of the equation as, as he does through the second and third film? So that was, it was a reflection more than a question, but, you know, do you see yourself as a, <laughs> as a superhero? Well, certainly not me, but um, that, that, but that's quite yeah. I mean, that's a really interesting perspective, and maybe maybe if there's like a revision to the book, I'll add I'll add Batman to it because that's actually quite that's very, that's very true. I mean, you're right. He's he's part of the establishment, but he separates himself for various reasons, and that's the, that's the thing about being an outsider. It's so fluid. Um, you could be somebody that looks like me, but feel like an insider very much. You know, I was. Something about you know Kwasi Katang, who became Chancellor of the Exchequer for, for the best part of five minutes. But you know, he's an old Etonian. Um, he's very much more comfortable in certain environments than I am. And so it's such a fluid interest in science, but it's an important one. And if people can understand the phenomenon more, it will just allow them to not just understand themselves, but be able to understand how and why society functions the way it does. I mean, I was so surprised that this the subject matter was just so under under researched, and this journey's just begun for me because the book came out in June. But the hope is that over the next two or three or four years, like we can really socialise the subject. And and as you mentioned, a lot of younger people, the next generation, are going into working environments, and they have so many expectations about how that and why the environment should function in particular ways. And so you've even got this generational divide and, and actually some people who are from previous generations who are now feel a bit isolated themselves. They feel like, well, actually, you know, I don't quite understand certain values, sets that maybe younger people have, and I don't necessarily fully agree um, with them, but I, I'm losing my voice in this environment. And so the challenge is we need to find a way for everybody to better understand themselves. Um, and each other and be more accepting of this journey that we're all on. We're all on. And so, as I say, so often uh, in life, I've come across people who sound like they completely understand what needs to happen or why we are where we are or what the right perspective must be. But I always try to remind people that we have never, and I said this earlier, we have never been in a moment like this. Society has never looked or felt this way before. And so therefore, everybody's best ideas is still part of a really interesting social experiment. And we just all need to find a way to be able to muck in together and try and figure it out as a, as a, as a society. Because if we don't, the future may look or may be very, very bleak. And, and that's what we need to try and avoid.
Yeah, I think you're absolutely right on that, Samuel. And it's so interesting what you say about the generational shift. I went in to talk to my daughter's school recently about inclusion and they really were very much of the mind, well, why wouldn't we accept people who are different? Whereas I think my generation, you know, a lot of things you I had to fight for have been about, well, why would we accept these different ways of thinking and, and being? And I think it's going to be so exciting when that younger generation really starts to come into the workplace because those older generations are going to get a lot of challenge. And as you say, it needs to happen. So exciting times ahead on that. Mm. Um, Samuel, thank you so much. We've loved talking to you. I think this book is something which every leader should read. And it's such an important contribution to many of the themes that we we've talked about on this podcast around leadership around workplace culture and ultimately how we can help everyone belong so thank you so much for writing it and thank you for naming all of these elephants in the room which you and I will see every day and which need to be talked about which need to be tackled and which can ultimately help make things better for everyone so thank you for coming on today and thank you for sharing this wonderful book thank you for having me and thank you for reading the book Our pleasure. And will you be writing another one? Uh, Yes. (laughs) I owe my current editor some work, which I haven't done yet. But yeah, there's a second book. Exciting. Well, do keep us posted. Our thanks to Samuel for his time and contribution to the podcast. The Power of the Outsider, A Journey of Discovery is published by Hodder Books and is available now. And we'll share a link to where you can buy the book in the show notes. And just briefly speaking of books, um, I've also included a a link to a blog in the show notes about some other fantastic books that we would highly recommend to our listeners. Our next episode is going to be out now in a couple of weeks and we'll be with Eloise Skinner, who is an author, founder and psychotherapist, and we'll be talking to her about purpose at work. You can support the podcast by leaving us a five-star review wherever you listen to us, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google, or simply hit share on the episode and send it to someone who it's made you think of. Thank you for listening. Thank you very much for listening and bye for now.